Hey friends, welcome to church. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table and happy new years from us to you. I hope that you are ringing in the new year just fine. I hope that you are safely celebrating our collective exit out of the dumpster fire that was 2020. Hey, and actually on that note real quick, Christian, I don't know if you read this, but I read this this morning. Times Square this year, it's Wednesday, by the way, to you at home, even though you're watching this on a Sunday, we're filming this on a Wednesday, and I read this morning that we're going to watch, Times Square is going to be empty, but the ball will continue to drop, which when I read the article on how that's actually going to all go down, I thought that is so apropos for 2020, just the fact that like we're not even there and balls are continuing to be dropped, it's a beautiful thing, but whatever. It's a new year, new you, that is the spirit in the air, let's celebrate, uh, you can call me a romantic if you must, but I am a sucker for this season. I love um, times of change, times of transition. I love when one moment is eclipsed by the emerging of another. I love this season of resolution. I actually just love the idea of resolutions. I love these intrinsic affirmations that we make that say that we believe that there is more in us than it has yet to fully come out of us. And so we're not going to just passively sit back and sit by. We are going to ask the deeper questions and mind the depths of who we are so that that moreness that we sense can be the moreness that we actually see. We're going to do new things this year. So I'm all about the resolutions. We're going to start something new this year. We're going to sing a new song this year. We're going to uh, stop something. We're going to love somebody. We're going to leave somewhere. Whatever the thing may be, I love resolutions as they, they promise again and again that we are committed to living into the fullness of who we are and that we're going to stop living into the fakeness of who we thought that we needed to be. There is this sense when the new year comes um, where it's almost like at the end of this year, at this particular time, it is almost like it's a N Nintendo game. You remember Nintendo? Where it's finally like we get to pull out the disc and blow it off once more and put it back in and reset to where we wanted it to be. I, I thought that was for me, that was my childhood right there. And no matter what the scientists say, because you know that there are a lot of scientists out there talking a big game right now, how that actually didn't do anything for the games. I insist to you tonight that it did do something. The only way we got NHL 94 up and running again, the only way we got Mario back saving the princess is when we took the disc out and we blew off the dust. But we, we always knew when we were doing that that we were, not, we were just like resetting the thing. We were not actually renewing it. Like there was no mystery around that. When we pulled that disc out, when we blew it off up and down, we were not trying to create a new program. We were trying to solve a present problem. I'm just using that as a sermonic illustration to kind of ask you the question, like what is the aim of your resolutions this year? Uh, are you about trying to reset some things or renew your whole story? Because by and large, for most of us, we tend to be more about the former than we are about the latter. I think that's why you know, come the end of January, we'll turn around and we'll recognize that there were a lot more gym memberships signed up for than therapy appointments. There's a lot more big talk about books that we are going to read than diaries that we will actually write. There's a lot more, we were just talking about this, Christian, there's a lot more like the friendships that we'll carry on on the, on the guise of like, let's be uh, sarcastic, that's how we'll communicate, because we are still terrified to be sincere and see where that actually would lead. My hunch is that by and large for most of us, when we look at our resolutions, when we look at a new year and we think about a new you, we're actually talking about resets 
and not renewal. And that's important to clarify because we often just fall for the idea that we're going along with renewal when the whole time we're living in this, this mode of being where we are trying to impress others instead of do what's important to us, which is right in line with reset, but not actually renewal. I wanna talk about renewal tonight. I wanna talk about what it looks like to go backwards tonight. I wanna talk about what it looks like to have something deeper than what we typically go for. Now, to be clear though, when I talk about these things, I said this already, but I'll say it once more. I'm all for the resolutions. I'm all for the pulling out of the Nintendo game. I'm all for the tweaks, the gym memberships, the, the book clubs, everything that you are setting out for, game on. I cast no shade upon you tonight. I, I think that's a beautiful, I think we should actually all be intentionally and proactively pursuing lives that we are fully integrated and living into our healthy reality. As long as we understand that in our reaches, in all of our doing, in all of our striving, in all of our reaching, as long as we go about that with the understanding that we have all already been reached. I say this before and I'll say it once more, but I think about when we look at our 2021 and the year that is to come, when we think about all the things that we intend to go after, I wanna cheer us on, but I do not want us to leave the house without the clarity and the conviction that no matter what we achieve, accomplish, uh, purchase or pick up, if we aren't rooted in what we're coming from, we'll always fall short in what we're going for. If, if we're not clear about where our story starts, we'll never be satisfied, no matter how far our story is going to stretch. And that really is the good news of the gospel. Debbie, I was just talking to her about this. This is the good news that is redundant in its aim and it's explicit in its communication. If we don't understand this, we're gonna miss the whole thing. But it is the good news of the gospel that if you don't understand who you are from the start, you'll never find it in your search. It's the good news. But it might feel like bad news to some of you. Because for some of you, the space, when you think about where your story started, that is also asking you to think about a season that you barely survived. I know some of your stories and some of you, you've been picking up for the past decade now, different trophies in hopes that somehow that would heal past trauma. And then you get to this point right now, December, late December, days before 2021 kicks in and you're exhausted, you're disappointed, you're fatigued and you're frustrated because once again, those trophies, they weren't up for the task at hand. They didn't solve the pain of the trauma in the past and you're still left figuring out what do I do with this gnawing ache inside of me? You still have to go back to that place that you thought that you would never have to return to. This is actually one of the first things that I ever learned going to therapy. As somebody who loves therapy, appreciates therapy, and at this rate will probably be in therapy for my entire life, this is one of the first lessons that I picked up when I went into the office because I stepped into that therapeutic office with my therapist at hand and I brought to her my, my current present predicaments, my problems, and I laid them out before them and thinking that we were going to go into the nitty gritty of each of them and she'd help walk me through them all. What I found out though is that when I brought her my present problems, she asked me questions about my past. She wanted to know what had happened before I went into what was happening. She asked me questions about family origin. She asked me questions about how my dad loved my mom and how my mom loved us kids. What was their parenting style like? She asked me questions about where I came from before I got to where I am. Now, I know that for me, 
I grew up in an incredibly loving family. Like, I, I have nothing but, and I also actually know that increasingly every year, I know how rare of a gift that is. But what I've come to find out through the therapeutic help is that even in a fruitful tree like that, there were things that I needed to go back inside of to understand the way things were unfolding in front of me. There were things behind me that I needed to understand if I was going to actually make forward movement in front of me. Fundamental to who we are, fundamental to us being fully alive and living up to the fullest sense of that word is this understanding that at some point life will force your hand and you'll have to stop and sit still and grab all of those things that are floating around inside of you. The things that you are terrified that they might be true, you have to grab them, pin them down and stamp on top of them a bigger story that actually is true. The question though is, what story will you stamp? What story is gonna be that bigger story through which you can place your story? And for that answer, I wanna to go to Ephesus tonight. Ephesus, we've talked about this before, but Ephesus was, especially when Paul wrote his letter, it was this um, epicenter of commercial trade. It had a booming economy. It was the fourth largest city of, at its time. It was tied to the Aegean River and Aegean Sea in the Caesar River. It was this major like, trade route where life by and large was actually pretty good. While much of the world back in the time of Paul when he wrote his letter around 61 AD, while much of the world was worried about like what kind of food they were gonna end up putting on their plate, the Ephesians were concerned about what kind of respect you're gonna put on their name. They were concerned about climbing the different proverbial ladders that were out there and accomplishing the impossible feats. They were concerned about being celebrated by all and envied by all and seen by all. The Ephesians were a people who were known for trying to be somebody, largely though because they were never told who they actually were. It's actually one of the dark sides that you find in Ephesus' story. And actually I would argue one of the dark sides that you find in any booming economy stories is that the reason why their economy was so good was because their sense of identity was so bad. It was so broken. It was so lost. They didn't know how to see themselves and so they took on these identity projects and they called them careers, hoping that through them, they eventually would. They defined their worth through utilitarian lens and they ended up doing the same to others. This is gonna sound absurd to you, but stay with me if you can. There were cocktail parties in the Ephesian world where people would go up to one another and as a part of their introduction, they would say, what is it that you do? As if that were simultaneously asking them, who is it that you are? That's the way things tended to rant, run in the Ephesian world. And I think that we kind of see this like painfully punctuated in one part of their society that we don't talk about, but probably should. There was a tradition at play in the Ephesian world that I want us to think about tonight before we get into Paul's letters. And it has to do with kids. When a mom in Ephesus was pregnant, when a mom who had been carrying this baby for nine months strong, when the time finally came for that baby to be born, that wasn't always simultaneously the same time that the family would add a new member. It could be, but it often wasn't, because what would happen is that when the delivery was done, the midwife would come to the mom, it would pick up the baby, would clean off the baby, then the midwife would then carry that baby to the father, the paterfamilias in the family. 
and lay the baby on the cold floor beneath the father's feet as the father stood above it and asked, do I actually want this kid? The father would stand above the baby on the floor and stare at it and ask questions about, do I, do I like the gender that this ended up? Do I like the bone structure, the body? Do I even want to be a dad right now? If the dad did, if it was all signs, green lights, if, if all systems were a go, what would happen in this culture is the dad would then sweep down on the floor, pick up that baby into his arms, and walk off to a feast, a celebration for a son has been born, a child has been given, and this is good news. But if the dad didn't, if those hours came, which they often did come, when the baby would be laid before the dad and the dad would stand on top of the baby and look down at his feet and the dad would not see a new child of his, but instead see a financial burden. If the dad would look down and notice that there was some kind of defect or interruption in his current life plans, if the dad would look down and notice how much to take in this baby, how much this baby would take out of him, then that father would reach the conclusion that actually I do not want this kid. He would then proceed to turn his back away from the child and leave the room, explicitly making clear to everybody else that this kid is to be dismissed dejected, rejected, and immediately evicted, gone. And the kid would be gone, just like that. Can, I mean, can you just imagine that? I know this is a historical lessons, le lesson in a culture far away, but just think about being a mother in those times. Think about the mom who carried this baby for nine months in her, in her womb, only to now have to carry it away from her home. She had hoped that the baby she was holding would soon be held by the father that she loved, but instead he said no, and so now she has to carry him out. When Paul writes his letter to the church in Ephesus in 60 or 61 AD, give or take a few, he's writing to these people. He, he's writing to the discarded and the dismissed. He's writing to people who knew abandonment, not in the abstract, but because they remember how their father turned the back on them and they were left in the cold by themselves. He was writing to people who knew what it left, what it meant to be left alone, ostracized, dejected, and dismissed. And I, I just say that because I know that I'm speaking to people who know the same. I remember a couple of years ago, actually, you guys, we were talking about, um, as a community, we were talking about how do we address God? Like by name, what is the language that we employ? And specifically, we were talking about how do we like transcend the limitations of patriarchy? And we were talking about the beauty of the genderful God and the ugliness of like limiting the Holy One into a he. And after having this conversation at one particular gathering, I had a young woman come up to me and she said, you know what, Matt, I've always hated, I've always cringed, I've always like winced when I've heard pastors and other people refer to God as a father. But it wasn't because of the gender that was implied, it was because of the dad that they made me remember. It had nothing to do with the gender, actually. It had fully to do with the dad who turned his back on me that one time. The dad who didn't show up. The mom who didn't love me the way that I thought she would. The parent who let me down. It was tormenting me to me because it made me think about all the things I tried not to think about. And so when I say the words mom and dad to you, what do you feel in your body tonight? When I talk about parents, when I talk about this historical reality where dads would turn their backs and babies would be ejected into the cold, what do you feel inside of you? Is there some 
sobering and sorrowful sense of resonance. Maybe it wasn't even the pain of abandonment as much as it was just this persistent disappointment. Maybe for you it was a mom who brought you in, but just to be tolerated and never celebrated. Or maybe for you it was a dad who bought you a car, but never showed up when you needed him the most. I know one guy who plays currently in the NBA who, who hasn't seen his dad since he was six years old, and yet he told me that, Matt, I still look in the stands to see if tonight will be the night when he finally shows up. If tonight my dad's gonna show up in the way that he never did before. And so before I say anything else, and I know that I've said this before, but I wanna make sure I say it again, is that I see you. I, I see that pain, I see that struggle, I see that ghost that is haunting you. You know, for many of you, I know that you have done amazing things with your life. I know that you have um, loved in beautiful ways. I, I see your success, your family, your commitment to love, your courage to be loved. I celebrate and see all that you are holding tonight, but I want you to know that what had happened to you, whenever it happened to you, it matters. It's serious. That wound does not just go away with time. The game that dad didn't come to when he swore that he would, the way that mom laughed at you when she swore that she wouldn't, the hands that brought you harm who were tasked to make you whole, and those words that brought you ruin when they were here to give you rise, those things, they don't, they don't just go away. You know, we can delete a lot of things out of our lives, but those stay with us. Those stick in a deeper way. That matters. It's serious. I see it. Just pause and recognize that for a minute. It's still here. That cringe you are feeling, it is rooted in something beyond this moment. That wince that you are carrying, it's rooted in something beyond this moment. And you know, we can have all of the wins in the world. We can continue to fill our trophy cabinets with new, brand new silver and gold trophies, but at some point, if that wound isn't treated, that wound will become infected and we'll be sitting around with pockets filled with cash and rooms filled with friends and we will have achieved enough and accomplished enough and been loved enough and still feel like none of it is enough because we still don't feel like we are. People may ultimately know our names and say our names, but it does nothing for our games because we still don't know who we are. We're still struggling to arrive at some place and enough. So I don't know what happened in your past. I don't know what particular hands landed on you. I don't know how the words fell on you. But I do know that what had happened in your past is shaping, is shaping what happens in your future, and it's shaping what's happening in your present. I know that many of us are where we are because we were where we were, which is true in Ephesus as well. You know, these babies, when they were dismissed, they weren't like killed immediately. They were actually, in religious language, left to the care of the gods, which was another way of saying, like, we're going to trust them to the elements outside. They'd be brought to the floor of the marketplace, the Agora in Ephesus, or brought to the city dump, which was right next to the theater. And the mom would set them down and then walk away. And to nobody's surprise, most of these babies didn't survive. Most of these babies uh, were either killed from starvation or hypothermia or scavenging dogs or birds. But there were some who did who probably ultimately wished that they didn't. 
because what had happened was these babies who would be left alone on the floor of the Agora, eventually they'd be picked up by the hands of merchants and traders who would give their days to trying to figure out how do we turn this person into a product? How do we turn these babies into slaves or prostitutes? So these babies would be spared, these babies would survive, but they wouldn't be spared by the hands of love. It'd be by the hands of exploiters. And so in the absence of the tender hands, who were tasked with telling them how loved they are, these kids were picked up by the takers. And I think that if we're honest, we all have been. To a certain degree, one degree or another, the, but I think that we all have looked for somebody else to tell us who we are and what we're worth and our value. I'll say this for me, let's go back to the therapist's office once again. The hardest seasons in my life have always been the seasons when I believe that what I do defines who I am, that where I go defines why I'm here that I need to prove why I am allowed to exist. And I think the same is true for you as well. I mean, in all of our lives, regardless if at the start you were kicked out or carried in, there is an inclination in each of us to look at our jobs and our friends and our performance ratings and our social media stats, hoping that eventually one of these things will tell us who we are. We are constantly walking through 10,000 different mirrors, staring inside of them, hoping that finally we'll get full definition on who we are born to be, why we're here, and why it matters at all. 10,000 different sets of approving eyes who will affirm for us, finally, why we are enough. I mean, there's a way that your boss sees you, there's a way that your parents see you, there's a way that your wife sees you, there's a way that you see you. And where you go from this point forward, is completely indicative, it hinges upon which mirror you're going to trust to tell you the truth. Paul knows this. And so Paul, he provides the people with a better mirror. In 61 AD, when Paul is elsewhere in the Roman world, and yet he hears whispers of the crookedness happening in the Ephesian church, he's compelled to write them about being more inclusive and being led by love, but he leads with the fact that they are the ones who are loved to a group of people who are staring in broken mirrors, to a group of people who have a history of dads turning their backs on them, to a group that have been told that they were blemished and blamed at birth and abandoned because of it, to the ones who picked up trauma because no parent would pick up them, Paul starts his letter by saying this, how blessed is God and what a blessing he is. He is the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. And what pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-gifting, gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son, to a people who have been haunted by the ghosts of abandonment. Paul says, I have good news of adoption. To a people who have been picked up by the hands of lust. Paul says, there were hands of love that got you first. To a people who traced their stories back to when their dads turned their back. Paul says that there was a better story, a bigger story that started your story first. Long, long ago, he writes, long before you were dismissed or dejected or abandoned or alone, you were chosen by one who delights in you. You're not a slave, you're not a mistake, you are a family, you are a daughter, you are a son, you're a child of God, and you are loved. Paul says, I know all about the marketplace. 
I know all the things that have happened to you. I know about the 10,000 mirrors and the definitions that they offer, but there's a bigger story for you to rest in than the broken one that you're running from. Listen, I don't know what happened to you when you were lying on that floor. I don't know what happened to you when the takers came and laid their hands on you. I don't know what happened to you when your parents hovered above you. But Paul wants you to know what the gospel has always said to be true, that there is one who stood before you before the takers ever came, and you are celebrated, and you are loved, and you are seen, and you are enough that you've always been wanted, you've always been deemed significant, that you've always had value, that you've always been on purpose and you've never been a mistake. You've never been defected. You've always been an occasion of joy. That is the good news of the gospel. I love how the psalmist, you know, we're looking at the, the revised common lectionary. The psalmist in 139, he writes that, um, the darkness will not be dark to you. I love that line because the darkness, it's not denying the fact that the darkness is still gonna be dark. There's gonna be darkness out there. There's gonna be bad things that'll happen to you that have happened to you. That, there's a reality to your past that is present right there, but the effect of that reality will not be the same when you place your residence, not in your broken past, but in Christ who redeems you, who calls you his, who calls you ours, who makes a family for you where the family was none. You are loved, you are celebrated. And so the darkness will not be dark to us. So let's make our resolutions. As long as we understand that what has already been said about you, your value, it's already been resolved. Our central task for 2021 is not to look better in front of broken mirrors, but to learn who this person is that God keeps insisting that I already am, to stop auditioning for a part that God has already tasked for me to play. Christians are people who are learning who they are in Christ. This is why when Paul writes his letter, he sets out, by the way, to add some course correction, but he doesn't actually get to that till chapter four. The first three chapters, he doesn't tell them what they need to do. He tells them who it is that they are. I'm gonna start with the fact that you are loved, and now I'm gonna tell you about the ways that loving looks. I'm gonna start with who you are, not what you need to do, and I hope to God that you start 2021 in the exact same space, because I think that's where the freedom lies. I think this is why the only gospel that comes out of Ephesus is the one written by John who defines himself not as just a witness, not as just an evangelist, but as the, gospel, as the, the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. There's something about the Ephesian waters from that broken place that made them recognize that we are adopted, that we are chosen, that we did not sneak into this world, but we were spoken into it with purpose, with power, and we are an occasion for joy in God. And so wherever you are tonight, as you step into this brand new year, will you just let me do this one thing? I know this message is running a little bit long, but will you just close your eyes? And will you just hold out your hands? I want you to hear this word because the truest thing, you know, this afternoon I was in and out of the office and my son Sawyer, when I got up for lunch and I was about to go back in, I had my headphones in my ears and he came running up to me and he goes, Dad, no. He goes, I need you to have a hug before you go back in. I need you to have this hug before you go back in. Hear these words. You're not a bad person. You are not a liar. 
You're not a cheat, you're not a failure, you're not a fraud. You're not toxic, you're not weak, you're not ugly. You're not defected, you are not to be dismissed. You're a child of God. You are loved by God. You are the joy of God. And my prayer for us as a community that we would learn this year to actually embrace all that God insists that we have always been. You are loved, friends. We will see you next week. One of our core foundations here at the table is that we are the beloved of God and that we belong to God. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in his letter to the Ephesians, that we are God's chosen. And one of the beautiful things about that letter is that it's not so much about me, Debbie, as individually chosen by God. It's us, the people of God. It's the community of God. It's the church. We, together, are chosen by God, adopted by God. And it's done through the gift of grace that we know in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we come together on Sunday nights, we celebrate just that, this gift of grace that we know through Jesus. And on the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup, we remember the gift of grace. We remember that we are the beloved of God, that we belong to God, and that it's out of his love that we belong. So as you grab your bread and your cup, hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And now together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's worship together.